The following is an encore presentation of the Archbishop's Corner. This program originally aired on April 2nd, 2017, on the fifth Sunday of Lent. If you have a question for Archbishop Blair, you can submit that question by email to archbishop at wjmj.org. Archbishop Blair welcomes your question. Once again, that email address is archbishop at wjmj.org. Now we hope you enjoy this encore presentation of the Archbishop's Corner. Hello and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. You'll never have a problem-free life, ever. You'll never drift off to sleep on the wings of this thought, my, today came and went with no problems in the world. This headline will never appear in the paper. We have only good news to report. You might be elected as president of Russia. You might discover a way to email pizza and become a billionaire. You might be called out of the stands to pinch hit when your team is down to its final out of the world series, hit a home run, and have your face appear on the cover of Sports Illustrated. It's not likely, but it's possible. But a problem-free, no-hassle, blue-sky existence of smooth sailing? Uh-uh. Don't hold your breath. Problems happen. They happen to rich people, sexy people, educated people, sophisticated people. They happen to retired people, single people, spiritual people, and secular people. But not all people see problems the same way. Some people are overcome by problems. Others overcome problems. Some people are left bitter. Others are left better. Some people face their challenges with fear, others with faith. You don't have a choice about having problems, but you do have a choice about what you do with them. Choose faith. In the Archbishop's Corner is where Archbishop Blair offers advice that will help us choose faith in answer to the challenge of any problem. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner, where your invaluable advice encourages faith in answer to life's overwhelming problems. Anything occupied... Invaluable... Yeah, it is invaluable. You think that I'm able to solve life's great problems? I, I want to build you up for this great undertaking that we're oh, about well, to achieve you. here. So, I no, give your my advice. Mo- modest advice as best I can. <laughs> well, to many people, it is invaluable advice. Anything occupying your time since last we met? Well, of course, it's uh, we're getting ever closer to uh, Easter and uh, Holy Week and Easter, I should say, and. Uh, yeah, that's uh, occupying a, a lot of my um, uh, spiritual time. time. Uh-huh. Uh, and then, of course, we're in the midst of pastoral planning for the archdiocese, which is a major concern. And as it comes to a head, that obviously is a, a weighs very much on my mind as we move forward. I think we've got a couple of questions on pastoral planning that we'll save for a bit later. But the first thing that I'd like to talk about with you is the fact that today is April 2nd, and it was 12 years ago. Would you believe it? 12 years ago this day that Pope John Paul II, St. John Paul II, passed away. He was elected back in 1978, the first non-Italian pope in over 400 years, also one of the most beloved, especially by youth around the world. Canonized in 2014, regarded as one of the most influential popes in terms of of teaching and the family. What do you feel, Archbishop, is one of his greatest legacies that he's left us? 
I think the greatest legacy that he left uh, was that at the death of uh, blessed Pope Paul VI and then the very short reign of Pope John Paul I, that the major transition or change that the Second Vatican Council had signaled as a path forward for the Church still needed to be articulated and guided pastorally in a way that could be truly fruitful so that the Church was true to herself and to the faith and yet met the challenges that the Council set for, for ourselves as a Church in the modern world. And I think, you know, Paul VI himself, blessed Pope Paul VI, near the end of his life, had some disillusionment about where things were headed. And, you know, the, the Council having taken place amid the great social upheaval and turmoil of the 1960s mm-hmm. and into the 70s. And I think what Pope John Paul did was give a voice and a direction that was true to the Council and yet brought a certain clarity about how the Church could live the Council and how it could respond to the challenges of the modern world and at the same time be true to the Gospel, always the great twin lights of love and truth. Both love and truth are what guide the Church. So I think, you know, the Pope was a great philosopher, a great teacher, really a great man. And, a great, and, and I think that, uh, you know, I always call him Pope, Pope St. John Paul the Great. Yeah. Uh, great is a name, uh, has been given in history to certain popes, and uh, it's not officially given. It's more by acclamation uh, out there in the field. Uh, I certainly feel in my life, my priesthood, my episcopacy, that he, he really was Pope St. John Paul the Great. I pray to him every day. I um, ask for him to intercede uh, for our archdiocese and for me. I mean, I'm the bishop I am today because of Pope St. John Paul. I mean, I, uh, how I approach things and how, how the faith has been articulated and, and the challenges that face us. So I can't say enough in, in, in praise of someone who was truly a great gift uh, to the Church at, the, at, at an important time. Not only was he a great gift to the Church, but I think many people believe and understand that he was a great gift to the world, to the world stage, because he had so much to do with the eradication of communism in many parts of the world as well. Yes, he energized the Polish people and uh, to end people behind the what was called the Iron Curtain to uh, resist um, communist oppression. And I, I say what was called the Iron Curtain reminds me of something important, that with the passing of time, Father, you and I are getting older and sometimes you need, you need talk, to remind me. Well, and sometimes we talk about the Second Vatican Council or this or that as if people know what it is. This is true. And the reality is that as as people get older and live through it, for for many uh, of our youngest Catholics or younger people, the Second Vatican Council is not a self evident uh, reality. Even historically, you know, with the, with the so called Iron Curtain that separated communist East Europe from the West, uh, we can't. Uh, take for granted any longer that people know that history, and mm. especially in a society and a culture such as ours where people don't pay much attention to history and people are often woefully ignorant of it. Indeed, Pope St. John Paul II did so much not only for the Church but for the world, and on this day uh, where we recall his the 12th anniversary of his death, we pray for his support for the Church, and as you say, especially for the, the Archdiocese of Hartford and our surrounding diocese. Archbishop, usually I have an offbeat holiday to share with you, and this week is no exception. Fri- usually, you always do. <laughs> well, Friday of this this week, coming week is no housework day. If now, you say so. <laughs> no making of beds or washing of laundry, and most important of all, no guilt. 
for not doing these chores. Now, when I was younger, the chore that I hated to do most around the house was vacuuming. What about you? What chore would you rather not have done or rather not do? You know, quite honestly, I'll tell you the truth. As an archbishop, I am so caught up in all kinds of things that uh, I don't do those chores in my house for myself uh, anymore. I don't have time. But I'll tell you the truth. I enjoy doing them. It actually, for me, it brings me down to <laughs> to a, a, a simple orderly thing that, that I actually find relaxing. When I am in a situation when I have to do household chores, I'm actually happy to do them. Because it because gives I, you a sense of relaxation, I'm sure, huh? I can, I, can, I can assure you that most people who might grumble at having to do household chores would not change places with me for a moment to, to assume the responsibilities of leadership and, and everything that a bishop has. So I'm not complaining, and I'm not saying that you should feel sorry for me. But actually, the simple things of life and the little orderly things of life are actually, to my mind, very good. I look forward to the day, hopefully, if I live long enough to retire, when I can just do those things for myself, and I'll be very happy to do so. I hear you. Well, Archbishop, we've got several questions that have been submitted by our WJMJ listeners. But before we get to those questions, let's take a look at our gospel for today. Interesting gospel on this fifth Sunday in Lent. Today's gospel is taken from the 11th chapter of John's gospel. So here's the gospel account as it is dramatically presented. And then following the gospel, we'll find out from Archbishop Blair what he believes is especially pertinent to our lives at this time and place within salvation history. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness is not unto death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by means of it. Now Jesus loved Martha, and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. After this, he said to the disciples, Let us go into Judea again. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, while Mary sat in the house. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, he who is coming into the world. Then Mary, when she came where Jesus was and saw him, <sighs> fell at his feet. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. See how he loved him. 
Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Take away the stone. Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Did I not tell you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes. Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. I knew that thou hearest me always, but I have said this on account of the people standing by, that they may believe that thou didst send me. Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with bandages, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Unbind him, and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. What are your thoughts, Archbishop, as we hear this amazing gospel account of the resurrection of Lazarus? Yes, it is a, a startling, and it, it, it certainly confirms the divine power and the divine personhood of Christ to not only, I mean, Jesus had, in other episodes in the gospel, had raised the dead, but here it was a question of someone who was literally rotting in the tomb for Jesus to have done this, you know, and to proclaim that, that he, he indeed is the resurrection and the life. Again, to emphasize the importance of faith, you know. He, he asks, do you believe this? Martha, you know, do you believe this? And she said, you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one who's coming into the world. So that's a scene that is played out in all of our lives. Jesus asked the apostles, who do you say that I am? And he asked that of you and of me and of everybody. Mm -hmm. Who do you say that I am? You know, our faith is not about some philosophical truths or some, even some commandments. It's not about a history of what happened 2,000 years ago. It's always about one thing. It's always about the person of Christ and who do you say that I am? And it's by making the profession of faith that Jesus can raise us from the dead as well and will. So it's a startling thing. And of course, it's on the eve of, of the Passion that this only enraged the Pharisees even more. In fact, we read later in the Gospel that they were actually planning to kill Lazarus too because he had been raised from the dead and he was a living sign of Christ's power and what he'd done. It is a very a powerful moment in the Gospels and it's a powerful challenge to our faith. This gospel should also be a comfort for all those who have lost loved ones recently and know the pain of such grief of losing a loved one. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But what do you say to someone who believes that if my husband had more faith, he would not have died, Archbishop? We all die, whether we're people of tremendous faith or not. Uh, and you understand that even Lazarus, although he came back to life, uh, eventually, he died uh, too. Uh, mm -hmm. we all, that's, nobody lives forever in this world. But it is our passage in faith through Christ. We know it is our passage from this life uh, to eternal life or eternal death, depending on our choice. That is always our, our great comfort. We can say to people, you know, you miss so-and-so terribly. They've passed from this world, but you will see them again. I mean, that's assuming that both parties have made a choice uh, for God and, and, and for, for heaven that you will see that person again. And that's a joy that no one can take from you. John tells us, 
He became perturbed and deeply troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Sir, come and see. And Jesus wept. How powerful is that, Archbishop, to know that Jesus wept? And what does that say to you about the Son of God and about God's love? Well, it shows the depth of Christ's uh, humanity, that Christ is one like uh, us in all things but sin, that he, you know, he's true God and true man, that Jesus is not just kind of a, uh, a facade of humanity, but that he really, he, he knows our sorrows and our joys. And this is a wonderful assurance that when we are in uh, difficulty, when we bring ourselves with all of our troubles and sufferings in the presence of Christ, that Christ feels uh, for us with a human heart and he loves us with a human heart. That's a very important thing to say, that, that Christ loves us not just as God, but he loves us each as a man, you know, that mm-hmm. like one, one like us in all things but sin. Uh, that, that's the sacred humanity of Christ is eternally uh, within, uh, in heaven with the Father. You remember several years ago, what was it, four years ago, when the tragedy struck Sandy Hook School and those 21st graders at Sandy Hook were, were killed by a crazed gunman, and he took the lives of those six administrators as well, and, and even his mother's life. And the question that was asked time after time, where was God in the midst of all of this? And I kept coming back to this particular gospel and saying, God was weeping along with all of us. Jesus wept. Now, recently, an 83-year-old man, while cleaning snow off of his car in East Hartford, was run over by the snowplow. Where was Jesus? Jesus was there, and Jesus wept. I find it very, this particular gospel and, and the fact that John goes out of his way to let us know that Jesus wept for Lazarus, his friend, very, very powerful and, and very much part of, of our contemporary theology today in terms of how we handle grief today. What do you think? Absolutely. We, we have to put everything in the perspective of eternity. Uh, you know, we think that we know how the story ends, but it doesn't end in this world. That's very important to always keep in mind. You're listening to an encore presentation of the Archbishop's Corner. This program originally aired on April 2nd, 2017, on the fifth Sunday of Lent. If you have a question for Archbishop Blair, you can actually voice your question by calling the Archbishop's hotline at 203-805-5047. Archbishop Blair welcomes your question. Please call 203-805-5047 to voice record your question. Please continue to enjoy this encore presentation of the Archbishop's Corner. We've got several questions that have been submitted, and one of those questions was a call to the Archbishop's hotline. Archbishop, I am calling about um, an incident that occurred after I approached a priest because my doctor had spoken with me after losing a loved one, and I was depressed, and he said perhaps it would help you to also speak with a priest. And I did. I spoke with someone that I had seen a few times but did not know very well. Uh, During the course of our conversation, I mentioned that my choice was to place my loved one in a crypt. Um, His response was that he felt that this was a very inhuman way to dispose of anyone's remains. I was taken back by this, and after a short conversation, uh, he said, well, you did what you thought your loved one would like. I was very troubled, as I said, and very confused. I thought, I said to him, that our Lord was placed in a tomb, similar. However, I did not reflect on it, as I should have, and he said, no, it was not like a crypt at all. Um, What is your feeling 
and how can I put this to rest? I really am somewhat mystified by the question uh, in as much as everyone knows that a crypt is a traditional form of burial that uh, is widely practiced and perfectly acceptable. I mean, the popes are buried in a crypt in St. Peter's. Uh, (laughs) I understand a crypt to be not just burial in the ground in a vault, but in some kind of uh, uh, tomb that is uh, in a a building or or some kind of... uh, Let's say it's it's even subterranean, but it's an open space. Uh, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, and I I have a feeling that there, there's something about the terminology here that's not maybe between our our caller and the priest that uh, that that uh, is not being described in a way that maybe was intended. Unfortunately, the caller didn't give a, a name or leave a telephone number so that we can call them back yeah. and get more information, but. Um, basically, there's nothing wrong with burying a loved one in a crypt, and many. My of goodness, it, no! I mean, they, it's considered very honorable. It's a it's a form of uh, burial that was often reserved uh, because it's more costly. I mean, all of our Catholic cemeteries have crypts. My parents in Detroit are buried in a crypt, above, an above ground uh, mausoleum, which I consider to be like a crypt. You know, I, so I don't I don't know exactly what what uh, is going on here. What the church does not approve of because it's not consistent with our, the reverence we owe to a body uh, in our belief in the resurrection is to, if a person is cremated, to then scatter the ashes on lakes or streams or turn them into diamonds or put them on the, on the fireplace. That, no, we don't think that's a proper way to respect the remains of a deceased person. But being buried in a crypt, whether cremated or not, is perfectly acceptable. Paul from Roxbury says, Pope Francis recently stated that he is open to married men becoming priests to combat the shortage of priests in the Catholic Church. Do you think that this is a good solution to the problem at hand? Well, Paul, I appreciate your question, but as so often happens, uh, things are reported in ways that can be misleading. The way it's summarized or presented, the Pope said that optional celibacy is not an option. What he said was that in remote places where there are people who are almost totally deprived of the sacraments for lack of a priest, that maybe he would be open to studying the possibility of uh, ordaining to the priesthood uh, what in Latin we call viri probati, that is men uh, of a certain experience and age who prove themselves who might be married. Maybe that could be a permanent deacon there. Maybe it could be somebody else. And the Pope even said we'd have to see what kind of duties we could actually give them. In other words, he's talking about really remote situations with no priest where somebody could be ordained just to to be able to provide mass and confession uh, for the most part for people. It's not a question of simply saying that we're we're going to uh, abandon celibacy for the priesthood. I'm very concerned about this because there is almost a desire to discredit celibacy across our culture, that people have no use for it, they don't understand it, in some cases resent it. What I'm doing is in the next, or maybe it's two, two issues, next two issues of, the, of our Catholic Transcript magazine, I've written a piece on uh, celibacy mm-hmm. from Scripture and tradition to explain to people what it's, what it's about, where it comes from, and why we do it. Because I think there are a lot of people who have absolutely no appreciation of it whatsoever. But certainly the Pope is not one of them. To infer that the answer to the shortage of priests is ordaining married men is probably to miss the point as well. 
I think it does. Uh, you know, when it comes to shortage of vocations, our, I pointed this out in, the, in what I said about pastoral planning, that, that even our Protestant brothers and sisters who have married clergy are experiencing a decline in vocations. Uh, our Orthodox and Eastern Catholic churches that have married clergy are similarly having a shortage. So it's not the answer that it seems to be, because the reality is that all the states of Christian states of life are in trouble. And I, many times I've said that we have a shortage of marriage vocations, too. Young people not wanting to even get married, maybe living together or simply not getting married because they're, they're frightened by the, what they see going on in the society. And, of course, uh, also the question of priesthood and religious life. Jeff from Waterbury has a question who says, I understand what the pastoral planning is trying to attempt and am very curious as to how the final plans turn out. I've heard some preliminary reports, and luckily my parish isn't directly affected, but there are quite a few in my city that will be. Apparently not all are happy about the proposed changes. Parishioners from one church in particular have been writing letters to the editor in our newspaper and voicing their frustration and objection to other media outlets. Personally, I think their tactics are counterproductive since they only bring negative attention to the Catholic Church. What do you think that I, as a parishioner of a church not expecting major change, can do to help alleviate some of the grumblings that is happening within my Catholic community? Yes, well, you know, I, Jeff, I appreciate your, your willingness to, to uh, be positive about it. You know, those of us bishops, and there are many, because most dioceses in the Northeast and, and Midwest, have, or many of them, have to some degree or another had pastoral planning. We all encounter the same things. When people are confronted with change, they often react in a hostile manner, and they immediately say, well, you know, Archbishop Blair was sent to Hartford to close parishes. Mm. All the archdiocese cares about is money and finances. Or they say, well, this was all decided ahead of time, and, and why even bother to ask our opinion since you already know what you're going to do? Well, how do you answer those kinds of accusations? None of them are true. You know, we just have to, I guess, be patient and pray for people like that because they're frightened and angry uh, that they, their parish may close or, or may be significantly changed. But what I always say is that, as I have through this whole process, that we, we simply have to confront the realities of today, you know, with uh, almost 70% fewer uh, mass attendants than we once had and almost 70% fewer priests. Things simply cannot stay the way they are. And so we have to reconfigure ourselves uh, for a more positive, uh, fruitful future. And when that happens, something's got to give. How can you change some people's minds about what they want to believe? But ultimately, this is a positive process, and the experience of places where it's happened is uh, for the good. You know, instead of just kind of experiencing a low-grade frustration at diminishing attendance and diminishing resources, fewer priests and nuns, it can enliven uh, parishes that are regrouped to be uh, more positive and to reach out to a younger generation and to, do a, and to, to ensure a more stable appointment of uh, priests who are capable of being pastors and giving good leadership. In, in every way, it, it strengthens uh, the, the community. Brings more just, vitality to the, the parish community. Right. But just to close our eyes and say nothing can change, even though everything is changing or has changed, that's, that's just not uh, responsible. You know, as I say, uh, kicking the can down the road is not an option. I mean, it'd be easier for me as archbishop to just try to temporize till I retire and try to patch things up and try to hold it together and say, well, let somebody else worry about it. But I can't do that. That, that I don't feel I would be fulfilling my responsibilities. 
And Jeff does ask the question, what can he do as a parishioner? And I would think, Jeff, one of the things, a very important thing that you can do is pray for all those who are involved in pastoral planning, especially our archbishop. I don't think this is a very easy thing for you to do, archbishop, or one one of the things that you relish doing. It's one of the last things in the world that I want to do as a bishop. And I must tell you that so many people come up to me at various things and say that they pray for me. They know I've got a a difficult challenge. Mm -hmm. And I'm very grateful for that. I don't know where I'd be without those prayers. And I also tell in pastoral planning, I've said, you know, I want prayer and even Eucharistic adoration to be part of this. You know, we're not, uh, we're not a business. Uh, we're, we're not some kind of a secular group. We're the, we're the people of God, the body of Christ. As long as we're in this together and our, our, we focus on the common good of the, of the people of the archdiocese and not just self-preservation of my parish, mm. then we're on the right track. The minute that somebody puts forward their argument for self-preservation— without any reference to the common good or to, to the realities around, then I say that's a non-starter. That's, that's not going to go anywhere. How true. Archbishop, talking about prayer, we've come to the end of our program, so if you'd close our program with a prayer and a blessing, I'd appreciate it. Lord Jesus, in this world, we experience the joys of the resurrection spiritually when we are raised up and saved by your grace and when you grant us an insight into the beauty and truth of our faith and of our ultimate destiny. And other times we're weighed down by the sorrows and trials and difficulties of life, which you experienced in your ministry and ultimately to the bitter end on the cross. We pray that you will strengthen us to bear our share of hardship for the gospel and to bear the sufferings and difficulties of life with our eyes fixed on the resurrection, with our eyes fixed on the ultimate triumph of goodness and life over all that weighs us down. And may Almighty God bless you all, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. We look forward to joining you next week on Palm Sunday when we'll take a few questions and look at the gospel and see what you have to say about the passion of Christ. We'll see you next Sunday at 7 o'clock in the morning with a repeat at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. In the meantime, enjoy this week. Thank you. Thank you.